The following is from East Delta Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at www.eastdeltabc.com. Thanks, Dylan. Appreciate it, brother. Well, good morning. It's really, really good to be with you. Uh, as Jenny and I drove up the drive, we had visions, of course, of the old building that was here before. Love how you replicated the front of it at, out front out there. Um, years ago, I would have driven up in my little yellow Ford Courier, 1980, 79, whatever it was, Ford Courier, and I would have seen Leonard Hinesley's truck parked over here. He was our one and only deacon at the time, and that uh, truck had a bumper sticker on it that said, I love my cows. <laughs> And here is this city boy. I was born and raised in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. And what brought us out to Texas, my wife and I actually were acquaintances at two separate rival universities. I was at the University of Florida, and she was at Florida State University. But we, and we, we were acquaintances through a Baptist campus ministry event, got to know one another, then went our separate ways for two years and showed up out in Fort Worth, independently of each other, not knowing the other was going to be there. And I can tell you after that, it was a whirlwind romance. I asked her to marry me, and that was August that we remet. I asked her to marry me in October. She said yes in June, but we, long story short, we moved it up to the Christmas break and got married on January 4th. So a total of six months, about a three-month, four-month engagement, and it's been almost 33 years. So it can work. It's not love at first sight necessarily. Love takes work. You just have to work at it, but it's certainly worth it. Well, I'd like to begin. I'll just preview a little bit what I want to share this morning. Um, It looks like the technology is going to work, and that's great. Um, Just a little bit of reminiscing like what I've done so far will be the kind of first little introduction part, and then I'll share a bit about our journey, our story, where we've been around the world, and then I'll close with a reading of Scripture and a sharing of a very brief kind of what I've learned, like the most important thing I've learned. And we'll share some from Scripture and close it out after that. So, uh, again, some of the reminiscing. We lived in the little parsonage right over here. We were here about five years from 1989. When our daughter was born, we moved here six weeks after she was born in Fort Worth, moved into the parsonage, and we were here about five years before we left to go back to Fort Worth in 94 because I was a doctoral student, And I was enjoying my first full-time pastorate. It was a bit of culture shock being here, being a city boy. And it was a little bit, I have to say, it's like my first mission post, okay? Because it was a different world out here, as you can imagine, for a city boy. So I spent a lot of time at the Charleston store having breakfast with with the old men and visiting in the homes and just getting used. And both our girls were born either right before we came and while we were here. Our, Our younger daughter was born in Sulphur Springs Hospital. Uh, so we have two Texans as, as daughters. We, like the bumper sticker says, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as soon as I could. So we, you know, begin to kind of establish ourselves here, made some wonderful friendships. Neighbors were, I know that I heard that Doug Blackburn is still over here. Doug and Betty were good neighbors and friends. Uh, Jeff and Ruth Powers were our nearest neighbors back behind here. We just saw Ruth yesterday in Dallas. She's doing great, looks great. Um, let's see, and then there was... Uh, of course, the Wicks family, all of them, uh, just have loved them ever since and so grateful to be able to stay in touch. Uh, then Opal Watkins was right across the, the way here, had visits in her house, and of course, Debbie and the Kenimers down in Kinsing. 
Um, remember, coworkers, Carolyn, I haven't had a chance to hug your neck. Are you still anywhere? Are you? You were at the organ earlier. She had to go. Okay. So Carolyn Worden was still right over here to the left, always on the piano. Uh, Chris Calvin was the song leader when I first came. He's no longer with us, but Chris was leading the music. And then there were the caregivers to our girls, which uh, holds a very special place in our heart. Back here, again, in the old building, but I'm pointing as if it were here. The nursery was back here in the old building, the fellowship hall direct behind us. But in that uh, nursery, there was Patsy Wicks, Ethleen Walker. Ethleen and Bill used to live down here towards Kensing as well. And Murdy Kenimer were the first ones to hold our little girls and help take care of them in the nursery. Then there was, again, some folks no longer with us, Freck and Jewel Holdren. And Buddy and Pearl Smith that used to live down the road down here. Uh, J.L. and Dot Brewer. They were real special. They had a, 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 an only daughter who was a missionary, Southern Baptist missionary in uh, Zambia, Africa. And we were grateful to kind of be the, the daughter and son-in-law that weren't local, <laughs> but, you know, that, that were local. And uh, our girls, they took care of Dot. They called them uh, Nana and Boo Boo. That was what they were to our girls. Very special. And then... Uh, we look forward to seeing, we saw uh, Teresa, looking forward to seeing Brandy Calvin later too, because Brandy would, uh, our firstborn would be dropped off at their house for her to take care of her son too. Uh, and then just lastly, uh, some new deacons at that time were Jim Rainey and Jeff Landers. Uh, we, uh, Leonard had a little relief, <laughs> had some others come and join him as deacons. And then it was during those years that this volunteer fire department was started during that five-year period, 89 to 94. And I had the privilege many times to be, the, the, be living here, being the first one to the station and getting the truck out and going to fight some wildfires or other things. And last, Cooper Lake was still just an idea. <laughs> it, actually, the work had begun, and I remember, I'll tell you a quick little story, on Betty Blackburn. One, you know, when sometimes I'd, I'd be ready to come up and I'd get hand, handed a note as an announcement. Oh, would you please announce this, this to everybody this morning? Well, that particular morning, I forget who was the bus driver, but somebody used to keep the school bus down here and uh, take runs to school. But on this particular day, there was a tour of, of the work that had been done, the starting of the dam and so forth. And uh, so this note Betty Blackburn handed to me, she had handwritten out, and I didn't even have a chance to read it. I just opened it up and read it out loud, sight unseen, and she announced about the bus that would be available and it would be here in the parking lot if anybody wanted to go on the damn tour. <laughs> and the laugh wasn't quite so loud back then. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So a little of our journey. We've got up, up here, if you go ahead and hit the next one, this is the family. Uh, my wife, Jen, Jenny, wave your hand. She's back here sitting in. So Jenny's uh, uh, with me. The girls are not. They're off doing their own thing. They're 27 and 25 now. Uh, you can imagine from newborns, both of them here in this area. Um, so we went from here. Go ahead and hit the next one. This is our home base now. My wife has two sisters who live in Jacksonville, Florida. And we've bought a home there because we haven't lived in the U.S. Uh, for 18 years now already. We left here. We went to South Carolina to take a pastorate there for uh, about four years. And from there, next slide, we moved to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Quick story on that was there was a Southern Baptist missionary in Singapore, which is just down at the end of that peninsula, a little city, uh, island, city-state. Uh, he'd been a Southern Baptist missionary there. Um, the church, he was a church planter, and the church he planted and grew, grew well in five years, so much so that they took over his support. 
except that they couldn't afford his uh, contribution to his retirement or to his children's education in the international school. So he had to do some fundraising. And uh, he started an organization. He got more than he anticipated and began supporting other work. And my wife and I were the first to come out under this organization because some of his members from Singapore, um, Americans, Europeans, Australians, and others, had started a little something in Kuala Lumpur as an international church. You know, when you have teenagers and you move overseas, you know how sometimes it's, it's not so easy to get teenagers to go to church. And especially if you're in a foreign culture, you don't want to go to a local church, even if they speak English, because the, the, the cultural difference is difficult. So an international church often is appealing to families with children and, and teenagers, and that was the case in this instance. So we came uh, all the way from South Carolina at that time to Malaysia in 19... What was that? 98, December 1998, to be the first pastor of this little group of 25 people that then eventually grew and grew as, as more internationals were there, and also Malaysians as well who were English-speaking. And we stayed there 15 years, a long time, 15 years. I, we, I did the pastoral work for, uh, gosh, 11 of those years, and then an opportunity came up to kind of take a lateral move and become... Uh, a lecturer professor in a college and become a dean of a school in that college, and I did that the last uh, four years we were there. And then my wife, Jenny, we, then we, uh, again, Jacksonville was our base. We'd go back generally each summer. You can do the next slide. Oh, sorry, here are the girls. Here are the girls. So when we left East Delta, our girls looked like that on the left. They were born just about, Abby, the time that we came here, and Sarah, while we were here, and this is, these are the girls now. Uh, the, the order is switched. This is on the left side, that's Abby on the right. On the left one, Abby's on the left, and Sarah. And I'll tell you quickly where they are and what they're doing. Abby, the oldest, is 27. She is in the States right now, uh, in Florida, but she is a missionary. Kind of, you have to say it kind of quietly because it's not an official thing. She's an English teacher in refugee camps in the Sahara Desert. If you can imagine Africa and where Morocco is on the far left west coast of Africa, right next to Morocco is Algeria. Morocco was once a Spanish colony, so they speak Arabic and Spanish. And it just so happens those were the two languages Abby wanted to learn while in college. She had neighbors who were girls from Jordan and Saudi Arabia and others, and she wanted to be able to relate to them and talk. They, they could speak some English, but kind of broken so she just, with self-motivation, learned Arabic in three years and was able to talk and chat with us. And then she's known Spanish since it was taught in schools all the way up through, through school. And now she's in a place where those are the two main languages, Arabic and Spanish, and she's teaching English to refugees in these camps. Morocco, after being a Spanish colony, Spain pulled out in 1975 and left a vacuum, so to speak, for both Morocco and Western Sahara, which is right below it, and the Moroccans moved in with their army and with settlers to settle Western Sahara, and the local people had to flee. And they went east into southern Algeria and had to set up new lives and tents and things in the desert. And the United Nations came in and helped provide food and things, and that was 40 years ago. And this situation is still unresolved. These local Western Sahara people cannot go back home because of the Moroccan government, and the, they built a, what's called a berm, a big like sand dune with landmines and things, and they can't go back. So it's still unresolved today. But that's where Abby is with an organization called Not Forgotten International, 
And she's been a year there and is going back this for a second year. After that, we don't know. Sarah is in Nashville, Tennessee. She was uh, accepted under full scholarship at Vanderbilt University to do a Ph.D. degree in history. So she's in her third year starting this, this uh, fall, and hopefully in three more years or so she'll be finished and wants to teach, become a college professor, researcher, and writer. So, and she's our first one to get engaged uh, and hadn't set a date yet, but probably next year we'll be married, and uh, we're looking forward to that. So that's our, our journey. Now to the next slide then. So back to, to Jacksonville. And then from there again on, in, uh, after 15 years in Malaysia, uh, Jenny had been teaching at an international school, which allowed our girls to go f- for free and get an excellent education in an international school. Then she expressed the desire to want to be recruited, maybe to teach somewhere else. When you're recruited as an international teacher, they provide housing and a good salary package and, and everything provided. And she didn't have that in Malaysia because she was what's called a local hire. I was the, my job was the reason we went, and she was hired on to teach and got a salary, but not the housing benefits. So we went to a job fair in Bangkok, Thailand, and an old friend from Malaysia who was now a school director in Doha, Qatar. Does anyone know where Qatar is? Have you heard the name before? Yes, Colson, good. It is right on the border of Saudi Arabia that sticks out like a thumb in the Persian Gulf across the water from Iran down the way from Kuwait and Iraq. Now, it's, uh, you might first think, oh, but that, that surely can't be a safe place. Actually, it is. The security and the, the surveillance and all that goes on is quite effective. And so we felt quite safe there. Crime is almost zero. Very little crime. You don't have to, like, it's kind of like the old days in this area. We didn't have to lock your doors. We didn't lock our apartment door and just we felt very safe. But after three years there uh, and jobs that weren't quite so satisfying, we were ready to make a move. And actually last summer, we tried, I tried to see if what might come open in Georgia or Florida back home and beat the bushes and sent out resumes and just nothing was coming open. So then we had an opportunity, both of us, to teach for the same school in Hanoi, Vietnam, uh, back in Southeast Asia where we'd been so long. Not the same country, but the same region. And we know people there. We know the pastor of the international church is a good friend. So we, we prayed about this, and God just made it so obvious that that's where our next move is supposed to be. So that uh, you can do the next one. We went back to, oh, sorry, here's Doha, just to give you an idea of what it looks like. Uh, Peninsula, this is the city, the main city. Yeah, go ahead to the next one, the city. <laughs> this is our daughter, Abby. She came to visit us twice while she was living in Algeria. Uh, it's only a, about a five-hour flight to Doha, where we are. So she came last Christmas and last April and visited us there, rode a camel with us. That's the city skyline at night. It's a, it is a booming place. You may not follow soccer and World Cup very much, but it's been in the news. Doha is having the World Cup of soccer. The, the world's biggest sporting event is coming to this city, this small country, in 2022. So they are ramping up now with lots of construction, getting things ready to, to host that. All right. Then back to Jacksonville, our home base, and now to Hanoi is the next one. And a few pictures of Hanoi, Vietnam. You can go on. Again, this is Hanoi. It's a, a thousand-year-old city in northern Vietnam. Of course, there's no such thing as North Vietnam, South Vietnam anymore after the war. By the way, you know what they call that war, don't you? It's not, we call it the Vietnam War. Can you guess what they call it? The American War. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, right? We were the ones intervening. So anyway, that's Hanoi. And this, this is a, one of those towers is where we'll live. 
So this will be our neighborhood, just on the outskirts of the city. And uh, one more. And these are some of the kids that we'll be teaching. I'll be teaching 11th and 12th grade social studies, politics, history, religion, literature. And Jenny will be teaching uh, 4-year-olds, 3- and 4-year-olds, preschoolers. And we're looking for the first time ever in our lives that we've ever had the same employer being able to teach for the same school. So we're looking forward to that. Okay? Uh, this little picture, again, was when our girls in 2013 at Christmas came out to visit us. And uh, those uh, cliffs and hills in the background, that's Saudi Arabia. And this um, little bit of water here is what they call the Inland Sea. So where we're standing is on a beach in Qatar, but across the water is we'd go to this place for beach camping, grilling out, barbecue, and kind of stuff. And the wintertime, I don't know if you know this about the desert. Right now, it's about 118, 120 degrees, very dry. So when you walk out, it's hot, but you don't sweat, which is kind of nice. Very different from Texas weather. But in the wintertime, it gets down into the 60s and 50s. It's very pleasant. And that lasts from November till about March. And that's when you would go to these kind of events. Like this was Christmas time, and we're out there in shirt sleeves. It was good. All right. That's mostly of the the journey. Um, Now, what I've learned, and if you've got your Bibles with you, you could turn with me, please, to Galatians 5. My wife and I both grew up in church. She's a a Baptist pastor's daughter from South Georgia and North Florida. Uh, I grew up in the First Baptist Church of Sarasota, Florida, and a few other churches in that area. Was called to ministry in the context of a Southern Baptist church in Gainesville, Florida when I was in college. Uh, Was basically a Southern Baptist pastor, either in training or an associate or here and in a few other places. For about, gosh, 20, 28 years, I suppose, before shift, making a shift over into education. And one of the things I've struggled with over the years, and I know it's true for many of us, is this issue about pleasing God, how to please God. And also, for some of us, especially pastors, we also have this thing inside us of wanting to please people, yeah? wanting to keep people happy. Um, it's just part of that pastoral caring nature is also wanting to, to serve and to please and make sure everyone is okay and everyone's happy. And you know that's impossible, right? You, you, the, who was it, Cosby or somebody said, I don't, I don't know the secret to success, but I know the secret to failure is trying to please everyone because <laughs> you just can't do it. But what I've learned over the years, and you know the greatest commandment when the, the young man asked Jesus, you know, of all the commandments, which one is the greatest? And what was his reply? Do you remember? To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all of these, these two instructions to us, commandments, fulfills the law. This is all we really have to do to please God. But I learned just a few years ago another way of looking at our walk with God and that is to, to, when you consider the question, which of these motivations drive your Christian life, your walk with God? Is it, I'm striving to please Him in everything I do? Or, and that's not wrong, but there's another way to look at it. How about striving to trust Him with my life and in everything I do? I would suggest to you that 
the striving to please God, if that's at the top of your agenda, if that's your prime motivator, you're going to live a life of frustration because we fail. We sin. But if you do what he asks us to do and to trust him with everything, trust him with who he says you are as righteous already, that you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to earn his favor. That's what grace is about, right? You are already favored. You've already been given grace. You've already been saved and made righteous. So live out of that new identity. And when you mess up, just say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Dust yourself back up and get up and go again. And trust him for his forgiveness, his grace, and his leadership in your life. And this way of living the Christian life, I am discovering, even till today, is a much more fulfilling way to live without the frustration of thinking, oh, I failed him again. Oh, I've done this. Yeah, I just, I'm never going to succeed. But trust him. And, and where do I get this from Scripture? Here's some places. First of all, the Hebrews 11.6, you don't have to turn there, but that verse you probably well know is, it is impossible without faith, which is trust, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So there's the two right next to each other. If you want to please God... Trust Him. Trust Him with your future. Trust Him with your children. Trust Him with your job. or Just trust Him with your life. That will please Him. But look in Galatians 5 for a moment with me. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. And sometimes that's what trying to please God leads to is a sense of... of a sort of slavery to having to do the right thing all the time. Listen, Paul says, I tell you this, if you're counting on circumcision, which was a way of fulfilling the law, but we could substitute many things in there of our do's and don'ts in the Christian life. Just put whatever you'd like in there. If you're counting on whatever to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again, if you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised or by keeping all the commandments or doing all the things that you were taught you should do, then you must obey every regulation, the whole law of Moses, he says. For if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from His grace, which is the only way we're made right with God and the only way we stay right with God is by the grace in Jesus for us. Verse 5, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith, our trust in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important, and this is key, what is important is faith or trust expressing itself in love. So there, back to the, or the most important commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what I've learned is, when we try to please God in everything, we get focused on where we mess up. And that occupies our attention. But if we take our attention off that and put it on the grace given us in Jesus and the righteousness He gives us as a gift, then we can focus on trying to love others well. Trying to love as we've been loved, unconditionally. Loving those who are hard to love. And then we find, and my own experience is, the other stuff kind of fades. And we don't struggle with some besetting sin so much because we're focused on 
something else. It's like if, if you're addicted to nicotine and can't, you try and you try and you try to stop smoking cigarettes, well, what's occupying your mind most of the time? Don't, don't, stop, stop. Instead, try some substitute or get your mind off that onto something else and you may find that the, the addiction fades and the desire begins to fade, especially as God's grace enables you and helps you to do that. So it's kind of an analogy, and your besetting, besetting sin may be something quite different. To finish off this passage here, he says, You were running the race so well. Who's held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for he's the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who's been confusing you. Verse 13, you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, again, important, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Now, Dylan, you mentioned about um, how maybe being in East Delta, Paris, could you think that God's not working here. He is working. This, I mean, what I'm seeing this morning is evidence of work over 25 years or so. I mean, if you had been here, well, you were here, but you won't remember, <laughs> you know, and that, it was quite a different place, you know. And I'm so glad to see so many new faces and, and see what, what the burning down of the old building has resulted in. Yeah, I think it was Debbie who said it. Maybe it took that to get people up off their rear ends to really start getting serious and start doing some things. And I'm just so grateful at the younger generation that's come up, taken roles of responsibility. And I see blended worship, the old and the new. I see old and new faces. And it just, it really warms my heart. And I know it does Jenny's too. It's good for our soul to see what God has done since then. So my final word is to you from the scriptures. The most important thing. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I know, I'll just say one last little thing about the, the turmoil the world is in. It's been referenced already in prayers. And we've been living in 18 years in two different societies where the Muslims are the majority. It's been an interesting and educating experience. We've never felt threatened. And I know unless you have friends who are Muslims, it's easy to think and have an us versus them mentality. But there's nothing like a friendship to break down stereotypes and make you realize they are human too. And they have many aspirations and hopes and dreams for their lives and their children's lives just like we do. And this verse about loving your neighbor as yourself applies to everyone. Those that are like us and those that are not like us. And, and I know... The prevailing thought among many people is that, well, they're all out to kill us. They're all terrorists. Well, that simply is not true. There is a small radical minority, just like among Christians. There is a small radical minority. You wouldn't want to be associated or, or lumped in with Westboro Baptist Church, would you? And the protests that they do and the angry, hateful stuff that they do? No, we wouldn't. Well, neither should we then lump every Muslim into that little minority of those that, that are angry and hateful and do terrible things. So would you just maybe pray for the rest? Of, because this time in the world's history, those who are Muslim, this, I would say, is the ripest time for them to change. Because of the radical nature of their, their minority, they see, hey, that's not what we're about. 
And I know personally Muslims who have come to faith in Christ because they, they've rejected Islam because of, of the radicals. And they say that surely is not the right way. And so I can tell you one whose name, whose name was Muhammad, who's now his name is Mark. <laughs> and his last name, his surname is Isa, which is the, the Arabic way to say Jesus. That was already his name that he went by, Muhammad Isa. And now raised a not religious in Lebanon, then as a late teenager, 18 and 19, became a more devoted Muslim, learned about Islam and began to follow. And then after several years, 10 years or more, became disillusioned, say, this is not the right way. This is not right. And he began being interested more in Jesus, reading the Gospels, and on his own, without any human witness, decided this is the way I want to go. And I had the privilege of speaking briefly at his baptism recently. We had a small service in a, in a house in the pool, and uh, it was a wonderful thing to see. And I believe more and more this is going to happen. I know it's happening in Jordan and in other places. So would you make that a focus of your prayers? Rather than focusing on the radicals and the terrorism, focus on the movement of God's Spirit to bring Muslims out of that faith to walk with Jesus. Would you? All right, I'll leave it at that. Thank you.